0: You're listening to a Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Just gone 8 p.m. I'm Alamine Templeton. This is Current Affairs, and you're tuned in to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio. A lot, of, uh, a lot of things happening around the world, a lot of it uh, relating to just normal life, and more and more of it relating to Gaza as uh, this ongoing, the most publicized genocide the world has ever seen and not witnessed uh, continues. And it seems to be spreading further and further and further afield. Uh, it's coming to a point where it's going to be, the world is going to be divided between those who support Israel and those who support Gaza. I've said before on this show that uh, Israel's genocide against the Gazans isn't just an attack against the Palestinians. It's it's an attack against every single human being on this planet. Because if Israel gets its way, if the United States gets its way, if uh, some politicians in Europe get their way, this will become the new normal. This will become the new normal. Every single citizen in this world is facing an attack from apartheid Israel right now, from the United States and from the European Union. There's no doubt about it that if we are supposed to accept that this is normal for Palestinians, we have to accept that it's normal for ourselves. The rest of the world outside what the international community, which is known to the rest of the world as the white world, The rest of the world is unable to accept this. The white community, the international community as they like to call themselves, they have to accept it because they are all all already guilty. Their governments have already committed similar atrocities in Fallujah, in Homs, in Raqqa, in Sirte, in Tripoli, in Baghdad, in Afghanistan, in Kabul, in Kandahar. We've heard all these names. The Kandahar Air Force Base used to be a torture center. And Americans knew that. Australians have been told, yes, their soldiers routinely tortured Afghanis. They know. They are all, all guilty. And they're expecting the rest of the world to accept that this is the new normal. Unlike the rest of the white world, the rest of the real world cannot accept it because it means that this is what you want to come and do to us. And you're willing to accept it because you can never picture in your own mind that this could one day happen to you. This is the fate of the darker nations. Uh, it's, uh, It's amazing how the lies and the hypocrisies are being exposed Even the very institutions that are supposed to be stopping genocide are in actual fact cooperating with the genocideers. There's an interesting article by Ramona Wadi out on uh, Information Clearinghouse today. She says never, ever trust the UN's concept of human rights. I guess you could say it's the white concept of human rights. The international community's concept of human rights. The white world's Concepts of human rights never, ever trusted. As Israel continues its genocide in Rafah, supposedly a safe zone designated by Israel itself, while it hounds out Hamas in other areas of Gaza, the UN held its daily press briefing and made use of its usual jargon, carefully evading any statement that could be interpreted as a reaction against Israel's war crimes. One would expect that after Israel has killed Tens of thousands of Palestinians and rounded up almost the entire population in Rafah for convenient annihilation. The UN would at least avail itself of stronger words. However, as the US, UN Secretary General spokesman Stefani Dujarik stated, humanitarian colleagues from the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Have heightened concerns of an escalation in Gaza's southernmost city, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have sought refuge. Heightened concern. They have heightened concern. Uh, we, we we have concerns normally, but today they're they're slightly heightened. Hmm? It's a bit like a uh, old Joe Biden, yeah, getting like really um descriptive in his terms and describing the genocide in Gaza as over the top. Dujarik said in response to a question in the press conference regarding the situation in Rafah: we saw again Palestinians being killed yesterday. What we need is a humanitarian ceasefire. The UN Secretary General feels it's extremely important to have this humanitarian ceasefire. We also saw yesterday the release of two Israeli hostages, which we very much welcome the fact that these two have regained their freedom. And it's important to see the immediate and unconditional release of all remaining hostages. Palestinians are being slaughtered by Israel, and the UN annihilates their presence, even from statements that should deal with the genocide they are living and dying through. The Israeli hostage situation has been used as a diversion, not least from the fact that Hamas proposed a plan which Israel rejected outright. The UN is sending a clear message. Any humanitarian ceasefire will be tied strictly to the release of Israeli hostages and only if Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agrees to it. So far, Netanyahu has clearly demonstrated that the remaining Israeli hostages are already collateral damage in the genocide inflicted upon Palestinians in Gaza. Another question was related to Israel, requesting the UN's help in forcibly displacing Palestinians. Said Dujaric, we want to ensure that anything that happens is done in full respect of international law, in full respect of civilians. He went on, we will not be party or forced to false displacement of people. And he's wrong on both counts. Maybe the UN needs to hear that it is encouraging Israel's international law violations, including genocide, and it is and has always been party to the forced displacement of the Palestinian people since entertaining the Zionist colonial ideology and coming up with the 1947 partition plan. Do words not only ring hollow in terms of the UN's purported concern for Palestine, of which it has none, But he also seeks to conceal the UN's historic role in forced displacement of Palestinians. The UN's role in creating Israel, a colonial entity on stolen Palestinian land, is equivalent to complicity in forced displacement, ethnic cleansing, and now also genocide. And yet, the Palestinians have been forced perpetually by the UN itself to remain subservient to international demands and conjectures. From Israel's establishment and subsequent international recognition to the defunct two-state compromise, the result Palestinians have been forced to reap is their own annihilation with the full blessing of the UN. Any official or entity asking Palestinians to abide by international law has always been a hypocrite. At this stage, anyone advocating for less than a permanent ceasefire Full recognition of the Palestinians' right to anti-colonial resistance and their full political rights to the land and liberation would do better to remain silent. The colonized have a right to defend themselves against the colonizer. It's time the UN should get that. So in America, how are such blogs going down? Are oh, the uh, the weak need? A congressman uh, always bowing down to Israel. Well, there was a very weak-kneed uh, congressman who walked through, uh, through Congress uh, just yesterday and was, was confronted by protesters. His name is Brian Mast. He's a very weak-kneed guy because he had his legs blown off, I think, in Iraq. Good for Iraq. So he walks around on his uh, prosthetic legs. He's very proud of his prosthetic legs uh, because he doesn't cover them with trousers, so he walks around with a pair of shorts uh, through through Congress, reminding people oh look at the look at the sacrifice I made for democracy so it's like a a medal two medals hanging just below his privates mm. yeah, so he he, he he wanders around like um some sort of um martyr for genocide. In uh, in 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 Congress, and while he was walking through, he was confronted by protesters who wanted to know what he is going to do about the genocide in Gaza. So let's uh, let's go through that uh, little interaction, shall we? A Republican representative believes that Palestinian babies are not innocent civilians but are terrorists who should be killed. Hmm. You can see that having his legs blown off has really given this guy a big heart. Florida Representative Brian Mars made the horrifying comment when confronted by Code Pink protesters outside his office. In a video, Mars can be seen calmly telling the demonstrators it would be better if you kill all the terrorists and kill everyone who are their supporters. When asked if he had seen images of Palestinian babies killed in Israeli attacks, Mars says those are not innocent Palestinians. The babies? asked the activists in astonishment. Mars then says that half a million people starving to death should have elected a pro-Israel government. When one protester points out that such much of Gaza's infrastructure has been destroyed by Israel, Mars says, and there's more infrastructure that needs to be destroyed. Did you not hear me? There's more that needs to be destroyed, he says, again for emphasis. More than 28,000 Palestinians have been killed since October in Israel's constant bombardment of Gaza. The majority of the victims have been women and children. Mars' horrific comments and the chilling way in which he delivered them should come as no surprise. In November, just a few weeks after the war began, Mars compared Palestinian civilians to Nazis and implied they're all guilty for Hamas. I would encourage the other side not to so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said, he added. I don't think we would so lightly throw away, uh, throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War II. <clears throat> it's very clear there's a lot of work to be done and that uh, the Americans are not going to take their thumb off the genocide button, not any anytime soon. In a way, it looks there's no other choice but to die. People in rough earths, uh, uh, every night before they're going to sleep, they uh, saying, "Yeah, forgive me in this world and the next, I forgive you this world and the next. Hmm. As maybe that is something that we should be doing every single day too, shouldn't we, with our family and loved ones? Because we don't know, we also no one knows if we're going to wake up tomorrow. But for the Gazans, it is a very imminent danger that they are facing. Meanwhile, Egyptian officials have shared details of Israel's plan to evacuate Rafah, a city in southern Gaza, where 1.3 million Palestinians are sheltering ahead of an announced Israeli ground offensive. The Wall Street Journal has reported that the plan calls for displaced Palestinians to be concentrated in the western area of the enclave within the coastal strip along the sea. Though Today, uh, the Israeli Navy was uh, bombing uh, Palestinians who had dared get into boats to try and find some fish in the sea to eat. Israel says it will establish 15 camp villages along the coast between Rafa and Gaza City in central Gaza. The areas included are south of Al-Mawasi and Sharm Park. Each camp will be equipped with 25,000 tents. Fifteen camp villages. Egyptian officials say that Israel expects the camps, which would include medical facilities, to be funded by the U.S. and Arab states. They're not willing to pay for it themselves. They're willing to put people into camps, just like Hitler. They're not willing to do anything to keep them alive, just like Hitler. Egyptian officials say that Israel expects the camps, which would include medical facilities, to be funded by the U.S. and Arab states. However, it is unlikely that over one million people could be safely evacuated. Nadia Hardman, a refugee and migrants' rights researcher and human rights watchers, said forcing uh, the over one million displaced Palestinians in Rafah to again evacuate without a safe place to go would be unlawful and would have catastrophic consequences. There is, no ways, there is nowhere safe to go in Gaza. If Israel proceeds with the offensive, its army will disrupt the already minimal aid entry in Gaza and cause extensive destruction in Rafa, as it previously did in Gaza City and Khan Yunus. These actions would exacerbate the uninhabitable conditions in Gaza both during and after the war. If Palestinians in Gaza are increasingly concentrated in tent camps along a tiny strip of Gaza's coast, with no homes to return to, no functioning hospitals, and little food and humanitarian aid, this will enable Israel's efforts to force Gaza's population to so-called voluntarily flee to Egypt by land or or other third parties by sea. Israeli leaders have stated they wish to make life so difficult and dangerous for Palestinians in Gaza that the most humanitarian solution for them will be to leave and allow Israel to take it over for Jewish settlement, in other words, ethnic cleansing. No matter how they state it, they have stated it. The situation would resemble 1948 when Zionist militias forced Palestinians from Haifa to flee north to Lebanon by land and by boat from the city's port. While Gaza is on the, sta- on the brink of famine, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu faces criticism for his, from his far-right allies for allowing any aid in at all. He told reporters last week the minimal aid we committed to is an important condition for the continuation of the war because if there is a large humanitarian collapse, we can't continue the war, he told reporters. Israel in December reopened its Karem Shalom crossing into Gaza to allow the UN and NGOs to increase aid. However, right-wing protesters have repeatedly blocked humanitarian convoys at the crossing, and the Israeli army has not taken any action to remove them, as they are compelled to do, according to the ICJ judgment. Well, they're very good at killing, uh, at killing civilians, They're very good at killing babies in incubators, pregnant women, old men, old women. They're very good at that. But how would they line up in a full scale, full blown war? Well, uh, the only danger of a full scale war, a full blown war that Israel could find itself entangled with, would be one with Hezbollah. So, of course, the Israelis, being Israelis, not liking death, not liking fighting against real men, against real soldiers, are very worried about the concept of uh, crossing the northern border and trying to take on Hezbollah. Not after Hezbollah threw them out of Lebanon. When was it? In 2004, 2005. Well, they've got Reichman University in Herzliya. Uh, suburb of Tel Aviv. Uh, does that Herzliya uh, name ring a bell? Yes, Herzliya High School in uh, in Cape Town has been accused of churning out um, stormtroopers for Nazi Israel's genocide, regularly bringing people from the IDF to come around and cheerlead uh, the kids. Yeah, Herzliya in Tel Aviv, suburb of Tel Aviv. Well, they went, they went and they did a three-year study, a really exhaustive study. They, they spoke to hundreds of military experts. They spoke to generals. They spoke to lieutenant colonels. They spoke to politicians and cabinet ministers. They spoke to foreign experts. They spoke to people all over the place. A three-year study. Hundreds of blood-stained genocidaires gave their opinions as to what would be the likely outcome if a full-scale war brewed, broke out between Hezbollah and Nazi Israel. Well, these are the conclusions that they came to. Uh, You can read it at your leisure on our website if you want. Uh, Or you can sit back and relax, sip a cup of tea, and uh, listen to what is brewing for Israel if they ever... Turn to the northern border area, and find conflict there. Hezbollah is waiting for them. The entire northern border area has been completely evacuated of all of the settlers. You know, you've got the Shiba farms there. People who used to own farms in the valley can look down on the area, and they can see their farms that they used to own, and their families lived on for generations. And they can see the Israeli settler farmer on his little tractor, mowing their lands and sowing his crops, and wanting to live in peace and prosperity while everyone around him starves. So you can understand that uh, support for Hezbollah is particularly high in Lebanon, particularly uh, having endured that Israeli occupation for so many years. It cost hundreds of thousands of lives and so much destruction. Typical of American democracy. Yes. And I'm afraid after all of their careful and exhaustive analysis, it doesn't make good reading. Because uh, you can see no matter how many bombs you rain down on the Khazans, they say we will not leave. You drop one little unguided missile on on a communication post uh, to the areas of northern Gaza, and immediately, like cockroaches fleeing when you turn on the light in a darkened room, A very dirty room. They just disappeared. Reportedly, something like uh, one million uh, Israelis have have fled Israel since the start of this conflict. Hmm. Yeah, open conflict between Israel and Lebanon's Hezbollah will be the most devastating war the Nazi state has ever experienced since its blood-stained inception, an exhaustive three-year study says. The report from Israel's only independent university, Reichman University in Tel Aviv, was drawn up by hundreds of experts and is probably the most exhaustive interrogation of Israel's readiness for a real war. It makes grim reading for the country's right-wing advocates who are egging on the genocide in Gaza. Unprecedented destruction and bloodshed would surpass the occupation's worst fears, says the report, which was revealed by Israeli news site Calculist. The report examines the readiness of the Israeli forces and the home front for a multi-front war. Not just the army, not just the air force, but also the civilians at home. Interestingly enough, by um, having read the report, it now suddenly strikes me, they haven't actually considered the economic, the economic sphere. What if the economy? Who's going to keep the economy running? Well, America has just thrown another $14 billion at Israel. So um, they know they can rely on old Uncle Sam printing the dollars. But certainly it must be a reason for concern. Um, Crucially, the last section of the six-part study, dealing with a preemptive potential strike by Israel against Hezbollah, was not released. Calculus says this may indicate possible concealment or manipulation. The report has been presented to senior Israeli officials, including former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, Security Minister Moshe Yalon, and former Chief of Staff Aviv Kochavi. The report suggests that the war will be overwhelmingly intense with Hezbollah launching opening barrages of between 2,500 to 3,000 missiles a day. This would include inaccurate rocket artillery and high-precision long-range missiles. Hezbollah uh, would also unleash massive salvos on specific areas like strategic military bases or cities in the key Gustan region. The relentless assault is projected to persist day after day, extending over three weeks. The report warns the resulting destruction will be unprecedented, accompanied by thousands of casualties on both the front line and among Israeli settlers, sparking panic and disarray. One of Hezbollah's primary objectives will be to undermine air defense systems, precision ammunition and low-flying aerial devices, including drones, gliders, and cruise missiles are expected to target Iron Dome batteries. The Iron Dome is of course uh, that so-called protective shield that is supposed to shoot down incoming rockets. Now, Hezbollah produces um, its its rockets for less than $1,000 a rocket, but the missile needed to shoot down uh, that cheap little rocket costs over $2 million. Uh, and, of course, they're much bigger, they're more complicated, they take more room to store, and uh, so you can only have a limited stock on hand. Hezbollah, I mean, uh, Hamas has shown uh, very very clearly in, in, in this attack that firing thousands of those small little missiles through quickly uses up all of the defenses, all of the missile defenses that Israel, that Israel has at its disposal, and if, uh, if um, Hamas had had bigger missiles available, Israel was, for a while, completely defenseless until more missiles were shipped in from the United States. Um, uh, the Israeli occupation could then be exposed to thousands of rockets and missile attacks without a defensive mechanism, says the report. Simultaneously, Hezbollah aims to sabotage the Israeli Air Force and limit its capabilities with heavy precision missiles directed at take-off runways to hinder repair efforts and aerial offences. Offensives. Intensive fire will target hangars storing military aircraft and precision missiles with explosive warheads. They'll strike sensitive infrastructure, including power stations, electricity-related facilities, desalination plants, and transportation facilities in Haifa and Ashdod. The report warns uh, a swarm of dozens of suicide drones flying at very low altitudes, would target critical assets within occupied Palestine. These include weapons facilities, emergency storage facilities for the Israeli occupation forces, and hospitals that would be needed for the unprecedented casualties that would be incurred. I wonder if they would target hospitals, but I suppose the Israelis think everyone thinks like them. Critical transportation infrastructure, communication channels and sites related to government ministries and local authorities are expected to face widespread cyber attacks, posing a serious risk of disrupting the economy. Chaos is expected to escalate as Hezbollah sends hundreds of fighters from the the Ridwan force into Israeli territories to gain control of settlements along the border area with Lebanon and strategic military sites in the northern region. This would force the Israeli army to divert its troops from Lebanon to counter the imminent threat. The Israeli public is anticipated to face challenges in receiving updated and reliable information about the unfolding situation, leading to a loss of trust in official sources. Says the report on a potential open war between Hezbollah and Israel. The potential for panic and fear is expected to intensify due to the significant number of casualties, extensive damage, disruptions in power and water supply, delays in the arrival of rescue and relief forces and difficulties in obtaining food and medicine. Hezbollah plans to exacerbate panic and confusion through the continuous psychological warfare being waged on social media networks to deepen internal divisions. uh, Those seeking to escape may discover that air links with the world have also been severed. And Hezbollah will not be alone, the report warns. Resistant factions in Syria and Iraq, Hamas, and the Palestinian Islamic jihad in Gaza, as well as Ansar Allah in Yemen, are expected to contribute to a violent and extensive upheaval. That upheaval will include disruptions in the West Bank and among Palestinians of 1948, with rioting in mixed cities, challenges in war perception for the public, and the lowering of expectations from the army and rescue forces. The report concludes by warning the Israeli Air Force and intelligence formations might not prevent the majority of missile strikes from reaching occupied Palestinian territories. Similarly, the assumption that extensive attacks on Lebanon would force Hezbollah to ceasefire is expected to be very inaccurate. Another report in late January saw experts admitting Hezbollah possessed the capability to launch about a 1,000 missiles at Tel Aviv within a two-hour operational window. The report suggests that some of these missiles will be precision-guided, while others will be directed towards the skyscrapers in the city. Israeli officials have admitted that the Lebanese resistance, Hezbollah, had succeeded in emptying the settlements in northern-occupied Palestine without the use of any force. They knew they could rely on the cowardice of Israelis. According to the officials, the Israeli Occupation Forces Commander of the northern region has received instructions not to escalate confrontations with the Lebanese resistance. That's because uh, the Israeli army knows that they cannot wage a war on uh, Hamas on the east and the south and uh, open up a second front in the north. Well, that all makes for rather sad reading coming out of Shums, doesn't it? Well, I'm afraid, you know, the misery continues even further afield. So, um, you know, this is kind of like reminding me of the days when I was at the Star, when we were covering the township wars in the 1990s. The editors and the sub-editors, all of them were white to a man. And the occasional artificial woman uh, were forever trying to stop our stories getting into the paper. Uh, the editor Peter Sullivan would uh, would routinely say things like, "Ah, oh, you know, people are getting are getting struggle fatigue. You know, they like to use words like that. People are getting struggle fatigue. There's just too many too many um, grim and death stories on the on the front pages. We need to we need to lighten up the newspaper so that people will continue buying the Star. You know, so uh, you would go." into a township and risk your life uh, in order to bring back a story. You'd go cover a protest march, you'd go cover a funeral. You'd come back and you'd write up your story, um, still smelling of um, that petrol smoke smell that you get from burning tires and so on. And you'd submit your story and they cut it down to postage stamp size and put it on page 16. And then they litter the front page with all kinds of really, like, really interesting stories, like you know, uh, what are we doing with um, the, tr- what's happening to the traditional Christmas dinner? You know, it's these sort of stories that keep people buying the newspapers. That was despite um, repeated uh, reader surveys showing to us that, in actual fact, the readers were looking out for the township war stories. I find myself in this position now. Yes, it is getting rather grim on the show. But it is also getting rather grim out there. I don't know. I, don't know, I try sometimes to um, to lighten the atmosphere somewhat um, with uh, comic killer sides and so on. Uh, but I'm afraid I don't see me kind of like uh, turning to uh, suddenly covering recipes and so on, or or useful tips for cleaning your the, the ring out of your bathtub and so on. Um, I, I can't see myself turning to that kind of stuff. Maybe if I'm forced one day. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I, I don't see Mufti AK coming along and making such a request either. So I'm afraid um, it's, uh, we, we, we're going to be welding ourselves to uh, this grim trail of destruction for quite a while, I'm afraid. And that gr- grim trail of destruction uh, continues across the Red Sea and it's unfolding in Sudan, where the world's biggest humanitarian crisis is now unfolding. It's funny, they used to describe Yemen like that. Uh, the world's, uh, might not be the world's biggest humanitarian crisis, but the world's most concentrated uh, humanitarian crisis continues unfolding in Gaza. But the biggest one is undoubtedly in Sudan. Sudan, uh, that part of the world, neighboring Somalia, you know, all of the around the Bab el mendab choke point there in the Red Sea. And that's what it's all about. The Red Sea and maintaining, keeping that jugular vein, Europe's jugular vein open. The carotid artery is uh, going overland with the, by the Euphrates River and uh, the Tigris Rivers up through Iraq, coming out in Syria, which was a real, one of the reasons why Syria was always such a. Um, A prosperous, well, not always. I mean, it has been devastated by war many times. And there are parts of Israel, I mean, uh, Syria, that used to be a very fertile uh, farming land. And it lies empty now, still, uh, as a result of the Mongol invasions. Give an idea of just how bad they were. So this isn't the worst that we've been through. But it certainly looks as though it's got very strong ambitions to top what the Mongols did. Certainly, the Israelis seem to be uh, very, very determined to top anything that Hitler did. By uh, turning to Sudan, coming out of Al Jazeera today, in September, uh, Abdel Abdelkhai started a soup kitchen in Sudan's capital Khartoum. She solicited overseas donations to buy rice, beans and eggs and cook for hungry families three times a week. Khartoum has mostly fallen to the paramilitary rapid support forces who looted the property and savings of hundreds of thousands of people. In Abdel-Khay's neighborhood, many Sudanese fell into poverty and relied on her meals to survive. When we started, about 70 people would come to us for food from several neighborhoods, abdel Hay said. Eventually, we started to see more than 200 people coming each time we cooked. Ten months into Sudan's civil war between the RSF and the Sudanese army, The country is facing acute hunger. Aid groups and famine experts is facing acute hunger. Rather, sorry. United Nations estimates that about 18 million people are facing emergency levels of hunger. Double the figure from last year. 18 million people. 18 million people. A recent internet blackout across the country compounded the crisis by suspending money transfers, which the diaspora relies on to support loved ones in the country. As famine looms, aid agencies are calling for $4.1 billion in funding to avert a catastrophe in Sudan and countries hosting Sudanese refugees. Even if the hunger levels stay where they are, hundreds of thousands of children will die next year by next year, said Alex DeVal, an expert on famines and the executive director of the World Peace Foundation. He says uh, that's what a year-long emergency for millions of people will cause. Malnourishment is already affecting millions of people in Darfur, according to Doctors Without Borders. You see, I... You see, the people who are responsible for ensuring that the genocide continues are all over the genocides, like the UN. No, we're here to help. No, you're not. You're here to facilitate. It's like America, uh, like that American uh, politician who, you know, spoke to the Arabs in Dearborn, Michigan, say, no, 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 we, uh, we really feel for the Palestinians while they're exporting the bombs to blow up the Palestinians. Oh a real feel for you guys they're there for to facilitate doctors without borders i know i know you know i've uh, i have i have known so many activists in my life uh, especially during the nineties you know you you got in you you got to recognize the really friendly and helpful british man you know. Oh really God, you know no they we're really on your side. We're really on your side. But they're not. They're not on our side. They're not on our side. Medisant sans Frontiers. I know people say look, they're in Gaza. No, Medisant sans Frontiers doesn't exist. It's just a corporation. It's a it's a made up entity. You can go and look in the Lord, it'll tell you it's an artificial person. It's a legal fiction. Medisant sans Frontiers does not exist. There are doctors in Gaza who you will see on television, say works for Medicine sans Frontiers. But that doctor in Gaza is a ghazan. He is working for Medicine sans Frontiers because there isn't any, any, any place else where the money is coming from. And that's the very reason why these people are operating in Darfur and they are allowed to continue operating in Darfur. Because they always always him back to their governments, what's going on. Uh, whether they do it knowingly or unknowingly. You know, it's an attitude I had about the South African police in the 1990s Uh, while I was reporting on, uh, after 94, how the the tortures at um, Brixton Murder and Robbery continued. I did some terrible cases of people that they tortured and... um, it was coming down to, I was writing stories about suspected murderers investigating other suspected murderers. You know, what is this doing to our legal system, our concept of justice in South Africa? Um, and, uh, you know, I often used to think about the, the honest policeman. You know, they they, they may be quite resentful towards my story, as though I'm presuming to tar everyone with the same brush. That all of you policemen are murderers and torturers. But in actual fact, when uh, so much corruption and evil is allowed to thrive in their midst, then they are as complicit. And so, you know, I I know that there will be people who will work for Médecins Sans Frontières, for um, Amnesty International, for Oxfam, for um, the World Food Programme, and so on. They say, what do you mean? We work hard, and we are dedicated, and we have saved many lives. You as an individual may have done so, but once you are gone, you don't know what the next person is going to do, whether they're going to put cyanide in the food and go and send it to the refugees. You can never, you can only account for yourself when you're part of a corporation. Because the moment you leave, somebody else can take your position and turn that position around so that it works 180 degrees in opposition to what you used to try and use that post for. On February 5, Médecins Sans Frontières declared that hunger kills two children every hour in the Zamzam displacement camp in North Darfur. Zamzam was established during Darfur's first major civil war in 2003 where government-backed militias from nomadic so-called Arab tribes fought against mostly non-Arab sedentary groups. Before the current war, the uh, the camp was home to about 400,000 people. Emmanuel Berbain, an MSF a medical team leader, said civilians in Darfur have suffered from rising levels of hunger after many UN agencies and global re- relief groups terminated operations in the region at the start of the war due to lawlessness and insecurity. Amid their shortfall, thousands of people fleeing recent violence in south and central Darfur have sought refuge in Zamzam, Berbain said, who recently visited the camps. He said civilians in Darfur have been left with nothing. Many people have also not been able to harvest their crops due to displacement or after their land was ravaged due to the war. Waterborne diseases are also causing extreme levels of malnourishment across the country, especially among children. In December, the U.N. Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs declared a cholera outbreak in Radarif, a state in the Far East. Burbank said that Darfur is likely dealing with a similar or even worse crisis. Children suffering from diarrhea brought on by cholera for weeks and weeks will suffer extreme malnutrition. That's why water and sanitation is one of the key drivers of the crisis, he said. Sudan is running out of time to mitigate a food crisis exacerbated by the conflict, according to a recent policy, ble- policy brief by the Klingen-Dial Institute, a think tank in the Netherlands. The report found that the war has acutely affected food availability and people's ability to buy it. In West Darfur, the RSF and allied militias conducted an ethnic cleansing program, possibly genocide, by driving non-Arab communities from their land. The RSF has also systematically looted aid warehouses, banks, cars, homes and jewellery from across the country. While to make matters worse, the army is restricting aid to regions under RSF control and cracking down on grassroots initiatives trying to feed their communities. By preventing people from accessing food, the army and R.S.F. may be perpetrating starvation crimes," uh, stated the Klingendahl report. What is clear is that, both general, is that both generals on either side show every sign of intensifying the war with reckless disregard for the humanitarian consequences. You see, we've got we've got plenty of Netanyahu's in our midst as well. I mean, just uh, just look at um, uh, MBS. Hmm. I mean, he, the, he had Jamal Khashoggi chopped up into pieces with electric carving knives, kitchen electric carving knives. Can you imagine that cutting through your bone while you were alive? you die screaming. So, you know, we, we, we most certainly, undoubtedly, have plenty of Netanyahu's in our ranks as well. Experts and Sudanese activists, say Western states and UN agencies should streamline funding for emergency response rooms, grassroots committees that are supporting hundreds of soup kitchens across the country. In Khartoum alone, the ERR is divided into several districts and they split their funding, raised from remittances and donations to activists running soup kitchens in their respective areas. Some soup kitchens feed hundreds of people daily, while others feed people about three or four times a week. Uh, According to Khadjuj Kuga, um, the kitchens are divided into small, medium, and large. The large kitchens produce food for between 100 or 150 families. The small ones serve about 40 and the medium ones around 80. There are many people that eat at these kitchens every day because that's their main source or only source of food. Despite the vital role ERRs play in feeding their communities, the global community is failing to support them. Duval said the Western donors are hesitant to directly finance the kitchens because they will struggle to trace how each dollar is spent. He added the global community willingly cooperates with the Humanitarian Aid Commission, which many experts and aid agencies believe is a front for military intelligence. Um, Media reports have uncovered how the Humanitarian Aid Commission uh, run by the government, controls, profits, and diverts and confiscates aid in areas under the army's control. Uh, food, food kitchens uh, are people who are accountable to the communities, uh, Deval said. Would the global community rather deal with them or with a government that's stealing the, uh, the food and the money? Well, while they're trying to sort out their answers to those and uh, other complicated questions... Uh, an interesting report has come out from the American Department of Defiance. Uh, and it says, Terrorism in Africa increased 100,000% during America's war on terror. Like, is like a, yeah, we failed, guys. Why don't we just leave, stay home, shut our mouths, and never come out again? And there is a very good reason to do so. Terrorism in Africa increased 100,000% during America's war on terror. So what is the cause of terror in the world? America. The, according to a report coming out today, where did I find this one? I think I got this off um the intercept. The intercept. A new Department of Defense report indicates, says the intercept, that violence on the continent today it's far worse than when the U.S. military went in to help. Deaths from terrorism in Africa have skyrocketed more than 100,000% during the U.S. war on terror, according to a study by the Center for Strategic Studies, which is a Pentagon research institution. The Pentagon, of course, is that huge, big, five-sided building that uh, apparently uh, a jumbo jet flew right into, blew up, made a huge big hole in it, and then the jet completely disappeared. It's an amazing building, that building. Uh, And in that building, a new study by the Center for Strategic Studies says that they are completely useless. Terrorism skyrocketing 100,000% while you're trying to crack down on it. These findings contradict claims by U.S.-Africa command known as AFRICOM, that is, thwarting supposedly thwarting terrorist threats on the continent and promoting security and stability. Throughout all of Africa, the State Department counted a total of just nine terrorist attacks in 2002 and 2003, resulting in combined casualties of 23. At that time, the U.S. was just beginning a decades-long effort to provide billions of dollars in security assistance, train many thousands of African military personnel, set up dozens of outposts, dispatch its own commanders on a wide range of missions to create proxy forces, to launch drone strikes, and even engage in ground combat with militants in Africa. Most Americans, including members of Congress, are unaware of the extent of these operations or how little they have done to protect African lives. Last year, fatalities from militant Islamic violence in Africa rose by 20%, from 19,412 in 2022 to 23,322 in 2023. So it went from 19,000 to 23,000 in just one year. That's an increase of uh, 4,000. And, that, and it has now reached a record level of lethal violence. And I will tell you what, that most of that violence that is being caused by American jihad, or I suppose you could say Paris jihad, um, the main cause of ISIS is America, not Islam. America is created ISIS, called on the UAE to come, uh, to come into the fight, to put some skin in the game, as Hillary Clinton liked to put it, uh, so uh, the twenty three thousand three hundred uh, victims fatalities from so-called islamist violence,' it's more likely uh, pentagon violence, represents almost a doubling in deaths in deaths since two thousand twenty one and one hundred and one point300 percentage jump since two thousand and two. For decades, U.S. counterterrorism efforts in Africa have been centered on two main fronts, Somalia and the West African Sahel. Each saw significant spikes in terrorism last year. U.S. Special Operation Forces were first dispatched to Somalia in 2002, followed by military aid advisors and private contractors. More than 20 years later, U.S. Tr- troops are still conducting counterterrorism operations there, primarily against the Islamist militant group al-Shabaab in Somalia. To this end, Washington has provided billions of dollars in counterterrorism assistance. Uh, according to a, a war cost-of-war project at Brown University, Americans have also conducted more than 280 airstrikes and commando raids there and created numerous proxy forces to conduct low-profile military operations. Somalia saw, according to the Africa Center, a 22% increase in fatalities in 2023, reaching a record high of 7,643 deaths. This represents a tripling of fatalities since 2020. The findings are even more damning for the Sahel. The Sahara area. In 2002 2003, the State Department counted a total of just nine terrorist attacks in Africa. Today, the nations of the West African Sahel are plagued by terrorist groups that have grown, evolved, splintered, and reconstituted themselves. Under the black banners of jihadist militancy, Men on motorcycles, wearing sunglasses and turbans and armed with AK-47s, rumbled into villages to impose their harsh brand of Sharia law and terrorize, assault, and kill civilians. Relentless attacks by these jihadis have destabilized Burkina Faso, Mali, and the Niger, uh, which also just happened to have uh, had coups and have started to throw out the French special forces that are on their, on their territory. Fatalities in the Sahel represent a near threefold increase from the level seen in 2020, according to the Africa Center report. Fatalities in the Sahal amounted to 50% of all militant Islamist-linked fatalities reported on the continent in 2023. At least 15 officers who benefited from U.S. security assistance have been involved in 12 coups in West Africa and the Greater Sahel during the War on Terror. The list includes includes officers from Burkina Faso, um, which has held coups in 2014, 2015, and twice in 2022. Chad, which had a coup in 2021, Gambia 2014, Guinea 2021, Mali two coups, three. 2012, 2020, and 2021, Mauritania in 2008, and Niger in 2023. At least five leaders of the Nigerian junta, for example, received American assistance. They in turn appointed five US trained members of the Nigerian security forces to serve as the country's governors. Uh, I could also go on to an alternative view for for those guys, but uh, I think we'll save it for another program. Otherwise, we're just going to get lost. Uh, Such military coups have undermined American aims of providing stability and security to Africans. Yet, the United States has been hesitant to cut ties with the rogue regimes. Despite the Nigerian coup, for example, the United States continues to garrison troops and conduct missions from its large drone base there. Chunters have also amped up atrocities. Take Colonel Asimi Goita, who works with U.S. Special Operations Forces, participated in U.S. training exercises, and attended the Joint Special Operations University in Florida before overthrowing Mali's government in 2020. Goeta then took the job of vice president in the transitional government, officially charged with returning the country to civilian rule, only to seize power again in 2021. That same year, Goitas junta reportedly authorized the deployment of Russia-linked Wagner mercenary forces to fight Islamist militants after close to two decades of failed Western-backed counterterrorism efforts. Wagner, uh, Wagner, a former, uh, went on to be implicated in hundreds of human rights abuses alongside the long-time U.S.-backed Malian military, including a 2022 massacre that killed 500 civilians. Uh, And there, I'm afraid we're going to have to cut it short because we are very rapidly running out of time. Uh, Yes. I think it all underlines the fact that uh, Africa and uh, the vast majority of the world that doesn't form part of the white international community would be far better off if the white international community simply took all of those uh, uh, apartheid walls that Israel is so uh, good at um, erecting and simply locked themselves in a little concentration camp all on their own and just left the rest of the world – to develop civilization real civilization well that's all we have time for for tonight jazakumullah for joining us assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh